Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm the Daily Beast, half-full editor Noah Rothbaum. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, David Weingert. Hello. Welcome. We're chatting about uh, something, it's, I don't want to call it fake news, but it's sort of close to fake news, right? Yeah. In 2017, there was a lot of discussion about fake news and people being misled and believing the wrong thing. and. Cocktails and spirits were certainly not immune in our world. Oh, no. From, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> from all types of myths and lore and legend that often get confused. Uh, as a matter facts. of fact, when it comes to to zombie myths that right. go stalking <laughs> across the land, even after they've been slain a million times, right. uh, there's there's the world of spirits and cocktails is second to none. Absolutely. It seems, I mean, I think it's a, a daily fight for us to knock back some of these fake stories that just keep cropping up and up over and over again. And no matter how many times we seem to set the record straight, it, you know, invariably somebody calls oh, yeah. to ask, hey, like, is this true? You know, I mean, the, for instance, the story that uh, Winston Churchill's mother invented right. the Manhattan at the Manhattan Club in 1876, which right. is so absolutely not true that, you know, right. I mean, not only did they have no women members, but she was over in England giving birth to young Winston. Yeah. So I mean, it's been I, debunked a million times. I mean, I think the Manhattan, I mean, we, we did a whole episode about mm-hmm. the history of, of the Manhattan. And really, most of the episode is debunking most of the stories that people have been telling us over the last 30 years about the history of the Manhattan. Uh, you know, and, and the Manhattan's not alone. I mean, the Martini, too, obviously. Uh, oh, there's so many. That episode, you know, it's a lot of you see over and over again in books or uh, TV or in articles about the connection to the Martinez and this and that. And, and, and it's really... like invented by Jerry Thomas. It wasn't. Right. It's uh, invented by Martini di Arma di Taja, an Italian bartender at the Hotel Knickerbocker in New York in 1910. The Martini goes back, you know, 30 years before that. So it's, it's, there's so many things like that. I mean, I think with some of these drinks, the truth is probably duller. Than, than the than the legends that have cropped up to yeah, fill I, in the. I mean, here's the the basic problem: is nobody wrote down when these drinks were invented right. at the time, right? Sure. So people start speculating, and that speculation immediately gets written down, and eventually, you know, eventually gets written down, and starts circulating, and suddenly, what was just I don't know, maybe it happened this way becomes that's how it happened, right. and you've got to undo this but you don't have any evidence to undo right. it with often and a lot of it i think with some of these drinks is that i mean they weren't extremely unique i don't know how else no. to put, yeah. put it politely it wasn't rocket science right so you look at something like the manhattan where it's sweet vermouth whiskey bitters so i mean the idea that one person like came right. up with this idea i mean it, it's a little hard to believe when, you know, all these ingredients were popular, different types of combinations of those ingredients already existed. So, you know, that one person had this, you know, light bulb went off and was like, I got it. I got it. Like woke up in the middle of the night and started screaming, like, I have a new drink. It's called Manhattan. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, it's probably multiple people, you know, coming up with. Well, yeah, vermouth was new in America in the late 1870s. Italy had just become unified and suddenly right. there was uh, Italy was having a business renaissance and some smart people started exporting this right. this product that they thought might have a market. 
you know, it was a light, you know, kind of digestive right. wine with with a, with with herbal elements. And they said, well, in America, they drink some things like that. Let's send sure. it over. And guess what? Americans said, yeah. And it's an easy thing to splash some of that into a cocktail right. and say, OK, you know, this tastes good. Right. And you could splash it into a gin cocktail, a brandy cocktail, a whiskey cocktail. You see all of those at the same yeah. time. With a lot of the most famous cocktails, we see a a very similar kind of story arc, right? Yeah. There are all these amazing legends that are often tied to a celebrity or a famous person, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's the Bloody Mary and George Jessel. Oh, yeah. You know, like you have, and you want to believe them. And obviously, one of the true joys of drinking is making chit-chat and like, you know, sharing stories in a bar and, you know, whether or not they're true, they're entertaining. And I think sometimes those entertaining bar stories, or as the Irish would call crack, yeah. crack has, has, has been written down and suddenly finds its way into history books where, you know, it's just one of these fun kind of stories to be repeated, you know. Right. And it, it, it is colorful and it, it, it is amusing. But on the other hand, sometimes the real story is also very amusing. Sure. And, you know, is really interesting. Right. Like the cocktail itself. Right. right. The, the, the name cocktail, there's so many myths about where it came from. And right? not just, you know, myths, but like people writing like it is fact. Like yeah. This is, oh, absolutely. This is how it was. You know, and, but, you know, it was it was because it was a feather taken from a rooster and used to stir this drink right. and Ugh. plucked from the rooster's butt. I mean, there's all this stuff like that. And, or, you know, mixing glasses that look like egg shapes that like, you know, they showed supposedly. Exactly. To... Or, or there's the one that the colors in the cocktail as it was being poured back and forth between glasses in this drink looked like the rainbow colors of a rooster's tail. Wow, you know, I haven't heard that. Yeah, oh, there's, there's so many like that. Even just the whole idea, connecting the rooster right. to a cocktail. Right. Like, I don't know when that starts, but that connection, you see rooster imagery on all types of barware, oh, yeah. cocktail books. I don't know who. In fact, I mean, you go back and you got to go to England and you look into the annals of the sporting life, and it turns out that cocktail was a slang term for something to make you cock your tail up. It was used in selling horses, and a cocktail was technically a piece of ginger or hot pepper that you stuck up a horse's butt when you were trying to sell it to make it look young and lively. Wow. And okay, that's actually really funny. Right. To me, that's like a way better story. You know, it's like, oh, I can see. Yeah, it makes me uh, cock my tail up in the morning. That, that's one where it's like the you know truth is stranger than fiction. Exactly. Yeah. And, and people are like, that couldn't be real. Like, yeah. But, it, but in fact, there's that's the only one that there's any evidence for, you know, and there is there's strong evidence for that one to be. Is, and that is it's somehow action. kind of. Yeah. Marked. Then it became like, uh, you know, slang, right. like eye opener, right. like we use now. Sure. Whatever you drank first thing in the morning. Right. So a cocktail became your morning drink, and it got applied to spirits and bitters, which yeah. was the morning drink. Interesting. And the sporting life, obviously, those people who were racing and buying horses were the ones. They were the ones know, hanging out in bars right, all the say, time. Right, and they were the, yeah. one, the first adopters of the, yeah. of the cocktail. Those people didn't have offices, put no. it that way. Where did they do business? <laughs> the track. The track. At the track. The bar. At the bar. Right. Yeah. But people want a story. You know, right. they want a story with every drink. Sure. 
It's uh, they they want the old fashioned to have been invented by the salesman for uh, for Green River whiskey or for Old Pepper whiskey, who you know brought it into the Waldorf Astoria bar. No matter the fact that actually the old fashioned is mentioned in print ten years before right. the Waldorf Astoria opened and years before the Pendennis Club opened. You know, I mean, again, I think it's one of these things where also a lot of the brands, you know, in the fifties, sixties, seventies, even, you know, they use cocktail legend lore you know to help sell their their products you know in advertising and, and same they, thing they're doing today maybe a little less sophisticated right. but same thing they're doing today and, but I, and in some ways i think maybe in the 50s and 60s people kind of maybe they knew it wasn't true you know like it you know yeah they didn't the, care really they didn't care or they just thought it was funny or yeah as we look back at these and write articles with Oh, you've got jerks like me looking into the history of it all and going, that's not true. That's not true. <laughs> or, or, You're making that up. Or worse, where <laughs> yeah. one of us is like, oh, I found this ad from 1949 that alleges. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. like there, this is the history of the, you know, maybe people reading that ad at the time knew that that was a joke. Or, yeah. Uh, we lose all context and we yeah. take it as fact. Yeah. These people of... really believed all this stuff right. or, or this what? is true. It's from the archives. Right. Exactly. You know, this, it's not really from this the archives. Was in this you yeah. know, Newsweek or yeah. time, like whatever. Yeah. The problem is myths are easy enough to put together. Right. And it, it, they, they fall into this category of things people want to believe. Right. And to disprove them is very difficult because you rarely have positive evidence about where a cocktail was created. All you can do is look at the myth and chase down all the facts in it and say that's not actually true or there's no evidence for that, whatever. Well, if there's no evidence for that, some people will say, well, it could be true. Right. And yes, it could be. Is it likely to be true? No. And some of these things went viral before virality oh, yeah. was oh, you yeah. know, even discussed. I mean, these things were you know spread like wildfire. Oh, I mean, one of my favorites is the uh, myth that uh, American whiskey went into charred barrels because they didn't have barrels on the frontier. So they took barrels that fish was shipped in and burned out the inside to get rid of the fish flavor and then put the whiskey into that. That's just bullshit. Complete and total. If you look at scientific journals from the 1790s to about the 1820s, one of the things that was being hotly debated at the time was the use of charred barrels to preserve seawater and spirits. Many people said this has great advantages. Some guy in Western Pennsylvania pointed out that if you put uh, whiskey into a charred barrel, it turns color much faster than into an uncharred barrel, and it looks older. Right. And what are these people trying to do? Right. Sell old whiskey. Right. And some of them, I mean, weren't they already putting in things like charcoal or creosote into the barrel? So it's not a big jump. Yeah, no, it's not a big jump. Ooh, like I'm already changing the color by adding charcoal. Yeah, they were rectifying it with charcoal and 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 and, you know, changing the color or the Yeah, they were they were trying to get some of the So it's not I mean it's not a huge jump to be like, Oh, if we're already adding this why couldn't we just turn part of the wood into exactly. you know, charcoal? And these guys weren't like dumb good old boys. Right. You know, they were they were reading scientific journals from England. I'm going to try this new technique. And guess what? It worked. And also fish barrels. You couldn't put whiskey in a fish barrel. It would leak. Those, those weren't the same kind of barrels. These were thin like right. nail kegs, you know. Right. They, they weren't like watertight barrels. 
I mean, it's kind of the perfect storm, though, for a myth or a legend to oh, start, yeah. right? Because most people now in 2018, our knowledge of different types of barrels oh, really no. non-existent, yeah. right? I yeah, mean, yeah. Like, like, you know. Aluminum if, beer kegs. Right. Exactly. Sure, great. I <laughs> yeah. mean, if you found a Cooper, you know, you know, a 150-year-old Cooper, if yeah. one was still alive, and you said to them, like, could you put whiskey in a fish? He'd probably fall over laughing. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, yeah. but that kind of knowledge to us, yeah. like, oh, sounds great. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Fish barrel, yeah. sure. Yeah, totally. It. Yeah. I mean, also, like, why would they use it for fish? You know what I mean? Like, if they already had a fish barrel and they're preserving fish in a lot of these places, wouldn't they need the barrel for fish? Right. Like, I don't. Right. Yeah. These stories are all like that, though. The, the right. more you start poking at them, then you go, wait a minute. You know, there's something not right here. You know, we've talked a little bit about sort of the roots of, you know, American whiskey, but. You know, I you know I like to call it sort of the Uncle Jesse, you know, from the Dukes of Hazard, right, you know, right, the theory right. of American whiskey, where you know, and and certainly the bourbon companies have have only fanned the flames of this myth that it was sort of this idea that it was all these good old boys in mm-hmm. the back country of Appalachia, you know, who are responsible for American whiskey. And to be no. honest, it's not. I mean, you know, at the turn of the century, before a lot of the people. American whiskey industry were Jewish people who had come from Eastern European countries. Yeah, and you, and you go back, that's absolutely true. I mean, who brought this knowledge where they had been making alcohol because they needed yeah. kosher alcohol. So they, you know, and, and a lot of these countries for various, you know, reasons, usually somehow involving anti Semitism, were required to collect taxes or mm-hmm. make the booze or both and, you know, run the pubs and, you know, uh, the pubs were kind of the stores or the hotels, especially in Poland or Russia. And, you know, they come to America and it's one of these things like any other immigrant economy, you know, yeah. one person comes, you know, they have the skill set. They start working, making whiskey. They bring all of their lawnsmen. Yeah, you get their the, the Rosensteel family, right, exactly. you, well, they, Shenley, you know, right, they which all is, come yeah. and they, they, you know, they have all this knowledge and suddenly, you know, it, it becomes so, you know, making Alcohol in America becomes so synonymous with Jews that, like, really well-known anti-Semites like, you know, Henry Ford. Right. Like, one of the reasons why he's backing Prohibition is because the way to sort of undercut, you know, the so-called power of Jews in America. Exactly. Because he's taking away, you know, one of their main industries. And Pro- Yeah, the distilling industry was considered really disreputable, <laughs> right. you know. So, you know, uh, after Prohibition and, you mm-hmm. know, both world wars and we finally get the American, you know, whiskey industry up and running and Jews still heavily involved. I mean, oh, yeah. Jim Beam is owned by a Jewish family, you know, Rosensteel, you know, Louis Rosensteel, you know, who's and, and the and the Bronfmans who own Seagram mm-hmm. own, you know, the largest and second largest spirits company in the world. I mean, they're always jockeying for, for world domination. Right, right, right. Huge names. I mean, they had so many brands, <laughs> Right, like you know, they had all the brands. I would say old granddad. I mean, it, like yeah. talk about a monopoly. I mean, yeah. really between those two companies, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like. National Distillers, but the National Distillers got out in the uh, 1950s. Right. They went into the chemical industry and, and you know, just completely like sold all their brands. Right. So, exactly. yeah. and, and, we, yeah. and a lot of them wound up with, with with one of the others. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's one of these things where through, you know, the 60s, 70s, and then you have people like Heaven Hill and the Shapiros yep. still, you know, family owned, you know, who are proudly Jewish and the largest family owned spirits company in America. Yeah. And they partnered with the with with the Beam family essentially, right, exactly. you know, and they've yeah. they've been mutually successful and gotten along quite well. Absolutely, and, <laughs> you and, know, it's but it's interesting because like after you know World War II, mm-hmm. 
do sort of step back, right? Like, and right. we even saw that before, like I.W. Bernheim, who right. starts, you know, his his brand is the biggest bourbon brand, I, you know, I.W. Harper, mm-hmm. before Prohibition, right? He, you know, he uses his first two initials, right? Yeah. But he takes, I mean, there are a lot of theories about who, you know, Harper was, but maybe the trainer or one of his horse trainers. Or very, a name out, out of the city directory. Right, very you know, it's Gentile like, sounding yep, name, yep. you know. He doesn't put his name on the bottle at all. And after really World War II, you know, Jews, while they still might own the companies, take a step back, you know, and this kind of myth that it's this good old boy making the whiskey, you know, in, in the backwoods. Well, and that's that sort of dominates, you know, our, our culture. It's it's funny. I mean, if you go back also to the beginning of American whiskey, the earliest whiskey distilling I've been able to find strong record of is not in like Pennsylvania. Right. It's in Massachusetts colony and they're using a German recipe. Right. You know, and they're talking about, well, we've got this German recipe for making whiskey out of right. rye. Right. And also they threw in some Indian corn, some maize. Interesting. So it's rye and corn and they're making this whiskey in 1648, which is insanely early for America. Right. They're saying, well, one person uh, writes to the other one. So how well is, is your little distillery doing? And the guy's saying, I wish we could distill seawater. We could sell <laughs> anything we can make. You right, know, right. everybody is buying it. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, and, and then, then you go down into uh, Pennsylvania and, you know, when the, 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 the kind of the focus of whiskey distilling in America kind of moves down there, the Massachusetts thing turns to be sort of a, a one-off and down in, in Pennsylvania and all those early distillers there, if you were sitting in on, in their still houses, they weren't English, they weren't Scotch-Irish, they were Germans. Right. They were talking in German. They called it, they didn't call it whiskey, they called it corntrom, right. you know, and it was, and that that's the beginnings of American whiskey. And, you know? and also, I think um, there's that new second edition of Canadian whiskey, uh, you know, we ran an excerpt. So what, what Davin de Kirkamo, you know, argues in the excerpt that we ran, it's a similar thing in Canada, that everybody thinks it's you know, early Scottish, Irish. Right, right. But it's really other immigrants who bring the, the real distilling knowledge later, yeah. know, from what I remember. That it's yeah, not... there, there's a lot of English guys came over. and uh, But yeah, it's, and were the Scots and, and the Irish and the Scots-Irish super important? Yes, they sure. were. But they weren't the whole game, you know? And in America, that idea that, like, Washington imposes taxes, right? You have yeah, that, yeah. Or, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion, that, you know, the people move further. right. Which may not actually be no. Saw a couple of them moved. Sure, you know, but it's uh, not the central. Kentucky was already being fully settled by people with stills. Everybody on the frontier had a still. Right, you had you know? to. Yeah, right. it's like how are you, how are you going to get your grain to market? Right, you had to distill it. You got to turn it into something that you can get cash for. Right, that, that that's easy to transport. You that's know, really interesting. There's the myth that we we covered this last year of like old Tom Gin was an oh, yeah. earlier type of gin and then there came London dry gin as the right. ultimate development. It turns out that's not actually how it worked. Every gin in England was made uh, by the rectifier uh, who bought spirits from distillers right. who only made grain alcohol, basically light whiskey, right? Not Unaged that different whiskey. than today. Yeah, white dog. Basically. Right. And and then they Archer's sold it to the Daniel rectifiers. Whatever, yeah, yeah, exactly. They were the equivalents of ADM, these huge volume distillers. So if you were making gin, you bought barrels of this 
fairly neutral whiskey from them that was highly, you know, rectified, distilled like three times and and made as clean as possible. And Not then similar to vodka. Or yeah. Vodka. Or, yeah, or maybe what, yeah, what, what, it's before they had the technology to get a really clean. Spirit. I was going to say, if they could make vodka, they would have. But exactly. this was as close as they could get. It was as close as they could get. Then it goes to the gin distiller who redistills it. And the gin distiller wasn't allowed to retail. Uh, so the gin distiller redistills it with botanicals. And then they sell it to somebody at a set proof. Everybody sold it the same proof. That retailer would then sweeten it and reduce it. And that became Old Tom Gin was the least sweetened. Right. But it, it all started as London Dry Gin. Old Tom was, was London Dry Gin with a little sugar and a little water. It's like listening to somebody talk about like 80s Miami and, you know, kilos of cocaine coming from. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Same business. You know, where, you know, yeah. It's like you step on more, it a little. Right, exactly. Yeah. And by the time it gets to the street, it's being yeah. cut with, you know, baby laxatives and whatever, you know. Yeah. The worst, uh, the, you know, the British did a survey, uh, this the, the one of the British medical journals and found, you know, some gins were up very close to legal proof and only had a little bit of sugar in them. And legal, legal proof uh, was... The equivalent of uh, 47% alcohol, which Beefeater and Tanqueray are still sold at, right? And then beneath that, they found it as low as, you know, like 20% alcohol and, and, and tons of sugar and water. But it all started as 47% alcohol, no sugar. Wow. So and, and so that's, you know, it's one of these myths that the, the people always, you know, in, the, in, in like bartenders will tell you, well, old Tom oh, Jen sure. is... I mean, even the UK now... There's a lot of kind of mystery about gin, right? And oh, yeah. this like idea that, you know, gin is this now fancy pants drink, you right. know, 007. It's like, mm, it actually had pretty blue collar roots, you know, yeah. where you have, you know, gin lane and, yeah. you know, all these. Really, it was almost like the mess of, I mean, you know, it was at a certain point where everybody it, is distilling it in their backyard and drinking gallons and gallons of it and i mean it's funny how it came to be an upper class drink is through the british military where you had people from the highest aristocracy being officers for people from of the lowest levels of society the officers almost as solidarity started you know hanging out in and and they could drink gin Right. And, and and it was a big raised middle finger to the bourgeoisie in the middle right. who was like, gin is vulgar. They're like, we don't care. Right. We're all, you know. Bonding thing. Yeah, I'm a know? duke. Right. I can do what right. I want. I'm going to drink gin with my men. It's a funny thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's this idea now that gin is this. Yeah, I know. Know, like, I know. Queen and, and, I, and, and yeah. the whole, like, the whole relationship between London Dry, Geneva, Old Tom. Oh, is, yeah. Just, I mean, you could ask 10 people. And oh, you get 10 different answers. At least, yeah, if not at least. more. I, I mean, know. it's, I don't think anybody no. <laughs> can keep it straight. I mean, you know. Who knows, except for you, basically. Well, you, you got Geneva, which is, is flavored whiskey made in Holland, right? They get grain, they distill it, they put maybe a little bit of juniper, hardly any though. Right. And it's it's like tastes like malt. And it and sure. the British see this and they can't get good grain no. because the Dutch have trading resources the British don't have. And so the British are like, well, we'll use whatever we have. So we'll make it the spirit as neutral as possible and we'll flavor it not with our good grain, right. but we'll flavor it with like botanicals. Right with artificial flavor. <laughs> so it's artificially flavored Geneva, it starts right. off as. And then, you know, well, it's it like goes its own way. It's like a copy of a copy of a copy. Exactly, right? you know, exactly. That's just... all it is. You know, it's like, and it becomes its own thing right. during the Napoleonic Wars. 
because Holland has got naval blockade. The, the you know they there's no sure. there's no Geneva coming out of Holland, so suddenly British gin people give it a second look. Speaking about Napoleon, I think one of the most interesting stories we've run um, in the last couple of weeks was one that Wayne Curtis wrote about the sort of Napoleonic cognac. Oh yeah, so it turns the Napoleon out, cognac. Yeah, that's so, another great right. Myth. So of course yeah. it turns out that Napoleon didn't drink. He yeah, liked, he liked a cup of coffee in the morning and evening. It was Italian, right? He, this know, is not. Like, yeah. This is he wasn't really drinking cognac. He was not a recreational drinker. He did visit Cavassier or the mm-hmm. you know the predecessor to it at one right. point, and as I think Wayne you know writes you know before Instagram he had sort of a like a painter follow yeah. him around creating all these paintings of his activities. So mm-hmm. you know, there's a painting of him visiting this you know warehouse full of cognac casks, and that uh, sort of turned that moment. Of turns into a whole myth that goes on for you know uh, several centuries, right? Yeah, yeah. This idea that you know, you know, he was a cognac drinker when he was exiled to Elba. He took cognac with him. I mean, there's all types of crazy right, myths, and, right? You know, and, and you know, it's again one of these things you kind of want to believe, right? You, yeah. you just you've embraced it, and now you know it's to the point where the brands have sort of backed off. <laughs> As yeah, they've it, had to, you know. They sort of backed off their claims. Yeah. But it's kind of funny because it's turned into a whole category that's now going to be codified by, you know, the, the cognac. Board. Yeah, it's become super VSOP. Right. So yeah. it's become like a legitimate thing. Yeah. And almost, you know, pays, you know, you know, homage to him. But, yeah. you know, it, it's one of these great myths where, you know, for it seemed for decades, people were being, you know, misled. They're buying and. You know, a lot of people were buying cognac that supposedly came from his cellar or was made for him. Cognac or... is, uh, there are so many strong, reputable producers. But there's also a lot of cowboys there right. who will say, well. A very diplomatic way to put it. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's you know, there's a market there. A lot of stories and yeah. a lot of about, about what yeah. happens in cognac. Yeah. And uh, that's a great myth because I didn't even realize it was a myth. Like, yeah. I, I never really thought about it. I just right. assumed that. He well, had drunk that cognac. Well, so you know, so many of these myths have kind of gotten built into the framework history that like spirits writers and yeah. and aficionados oh, yeah. carry around with them, you know. And, as almost as a badge. Like I you know, this is you Yeah, know. and, and it and it's all these bits of knowledge that if you look at it systematically one by one, you can kind of dismantle them, you know. There's the myth that uh rye whiskey was more popular than bourbon. In in like at the turn of the last century, right? You know, well, before prohibition. This is what we may disagree about, but yeah. But right. but you look at sales, and in fact, bourbon was more popular. It's true. Although the 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 sales of the bourbon, though, the one thing that I'll put out there is that some of the bourbon was bought to be blended into rye, right? Like some of it goes. Well, it goes into blended whiskey. Right. Some of the rye went into blended whiskey right. too, though. Sure. But I mean, you 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 look at like the figures. There's a, uh, there's one year where bonded, like once they right. put in the bottle and bond right. act, right? If you total up all the producers of rye, the rye comes almost up to the level of yeah. bourbon. If you total right. up all the producers of bourbon. But, you know, the internal, the IRS put out these figures right. back then. Are right. they accessible now? Not easily. Right. You know, sure. I mean, this is like it takes yeah. a lot of digging, yeah. you know, no, and then true. and you go through tax records and the, you got to look through the IRS commissioner's reports for all these years. And there's a lot of weird like jockeying between bourbon and rye. Oh, yeah. Like and, and which leads to all types of weird 
speculation or mm-hmm. this, like around the early days and who drank which one and yeah. what parts of where it was. Available. I mean, early on, yeah, rye yeah. was definitely more popular. Yeah. Uh, but, sure. you know, bourbon by the end of the century had right. had, had really eclipsed like the... eclipsed it. You know, it wasn't a huge eclipse. It wasn't like rye was a minor spirit. Right. Bourbon had the edge. You know, I think mostly because of the West. Bourbon was the drink of uh, in the West. Yeah. Like Chicago on West, it was Absolutely. bourbon. It was that frontier town kind of drink. Yeah, rye, maybe a little in San Francisco again. but and you also maybe see like the rise of the temperance movement, like in some of the, the traditional rye producing areas yeah. earlier than like on the frontiers. I mean, some of the states are adopting temperance laws well before mm-hmm. Prohibition, Maine, um, a lot of other places sort of put them on the books, take them away or there. So that, I mean, that also has an effect. And obviously, you know, the cities on the East Coast which were making a lot of the rye, you know, more affected than probably the the frontier. But A lot of the bourbon was coming not from Kentucky. It was coming from places like Peoria, Illinois, and it was not high quality. Another one of the myths that I would say is that if you ask people in Kentucky, where can bourbon be made? They're like, only in Kentucky. And you're like, well, no. It can be made in Kentucky. Like most, It is made in Kentucky. Ponderance is made in Kentucky, but it can come from anywhere in the U.S. by law. Yeah. Even Hawaii. I mean, and you know, yeah, absolutely. Traditionally, you had places like Cincinnati and Peoria, you know, producing. Huge amounts. Huge volumes. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it's only, I would, I would commend Kentucky for their stubbornness to continue to produce bourbon longer than any other part of the u.s really and their commitment to that spirit which basically means they outlived all of the other distillers right in areas around well the the other ones most of them like ended up becoming like archer daniels midland right. and just making pure grain alcohol right. exactly well, because of prohibition it's like there was still a market for grain alcohol right. and once they switched to that that market never went away again so it's like okay but before prohibition if you were in Peoria point of the Ohio and the Mississippi, you're surrounded by cornfields for three states around or four states around, what are you going to make? You're going to make corn whiskey, you know, and lots of it. The other myth that kills me is the one about tequila and the worm. Like, and I still get questions about that. Uh, Doing an interview with uh, one of the BBC radio stations on New Year's Eve, somebody called in and asked if I'd had the worm. Oh, please. I said, well, well, first of all, it's not a worm, right? Yes. You know, and then then it's a grub. Somebody, yeah, or, or somebody called in later to say that it was technically it's butterfly larva. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, you know what? Like, I haven't, whatever it is, like, <laughs> yeah. I have not had it. Yeah. And then somebody called, somebody texted yeah. in to say that they had had it in the 80s, you know. And, yeah. I had, I had it uh, from, it used to come in the Monte Alban uh, Mezcal. Right. It's like a double layered meth, right? So, yeah. A, it never really came in tequila. No, it was always, it was one brand of Mezcal. It only it. came in Mezcal. Yeah. So, Obviously, for years, nobody had even heard of Mezcal, let alone tequila. Oh, you got it down, uh, you know, in like Southern California and and Southern Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was with my band in Tijuana and we brought a couple bottles of very cheap Monte Alban, which is a blended Mezcal. And, you know, it was not like the delightful stuff we have today. It was pretty industrial, but we we drank it in our tour van and we were very happy with it. Channeling your inner Alice Cooper. Yeah, exactly. In 2018, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, if you gave me a million dollars to produce 
a bottle of tequila or mezcal with a quote unquote worm in it. I wouldn't know where to find it. No, I don't think you. I mean, I. I mean, without. I don't know. I haven't seen a bottle of Monte Alban in uh, twenty five years without you know? having to fly to. to I mean, I'm sure it still exists or something. But yeah, but it's again one of these things yeah. that people hold on to. Yeah. Forever. I mean, it, it's interesting because you know we we finally you know the millennials. This is a generation who basically never really knew bad tequila, right? I mean, no. they've, they've only lived yeah. in a world yeah. of Patron and Don Julio and yeah, you know, yeah. all this other, you know, El Tesoro and other stuff. But like, you know, people who are beyond millennials, like the worm and tequila is something that you cannot break. Yeah, like I, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was the malort of its time. Right. It was the, the frat drink is like, oh, you got to take down the worm. You right. know, it's like... Yeah, that that was hard that was a wired, long time ago. Hardwired yeah. into our brains yeah. that connection, yeah. and uh, that's funny. You know, you and I travel around the world talking about booze, and you know, if I, I was, I almost fell over that somebody yeah. was still <laughs> asking about. I know, I'm like, I have know. all this work over the last twenty yeah, yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it comes like, to nothing. Right. It's 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 amazing how humbling. Uh, yeah. No, realize. myth myth is myth you know it's it, more it, powerful it's, than either one of us yeah it's bulletproof that's the one about the worm so if, if you're listening and you you care there is never a worm in tequila if anybody ever asks that's that is no. the truth and and even in mezcal that's not a i mean it was a great marketing ploy i think they originally put it in so that you could see that it was foolproof right because if it's not foolproof the thing would turn to mush my stomach is already turning just at yeah. the thought of it well, you know, I've eaten plenty of like gusanos, oh, sure. You know, sal de gusano, roasted uh, little grubs and larvae and stuff. So, you know, I can only imagine that they were using the highest grade of well, of course larva they... for this. Yeah, I don't know, five dollar bottle. Of... Yeah, <laughs> it was a five dollar bottle of mezcal. I, I, uh, I can only yeah. imagine that yeah. this was. They were uh, definitely farmed a bottle. <laughs> Well, hopefully our, our work is not in vain. and, and we'll, we'll be doing more of this, though. <laughs> I can tell you that much. We'll revisit this. Absolutely. Maybe yeah. this will be yeah. a small subset of yeah. uh, Life Behind Bars. Here's to uh, the truth. Well, drink to that. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.